0: Chuck comes from humble and hungry roots. He grew up on a farm in Evansville, Indiana, and was able to transfer those ingrained principles to life on the Bering Sea. His upbringing played a major role in his success. As a farmer, you never know what the next season may bring, so you save. Seafood is cyclical. It is one of the last wild hunted proteins. You never know what you're gonna get, so it's imperative to save. At times, we didn't have the pocketbook to back up Chuck's big dreams and vision of expansion. This was until we partnered with ConAgra in 1987, allowing Trident to have the capital to acquire, implement, and reinvest where we needed it. We still carry Chuck's humble and hungry mindset today, constantly reinvesting back into the company. Listen in to gain some insight into our merger with ConAgra and how it helped fund some of our acquisitions in the 80s.
1: Chapter 24, Acquisitions of the 80s, stringing diamonds in the rough. The fire at Trident's Akutan plant and Bundren's disastrous involvement in the Portuguese salt cod market might well have been enough to torpedo the spirit and bankrupt the treasury of his fledgling corporation. But Bundren's determination to move forward didn't falter for long, because there was still plenty of fresh opportunity in the North Pacific for those who were willing to seize it, and Trident had already taken significant steps to expand its reach. Had Bundren's first foray into the North Pacific been to process salt cod, he would have been wiped out. But the company's foundation was built on crab, and its earliest expansion had been into salmon and herring. Those were good moves, and their success would soon overshadow the cod failure and provide the necessary financial buffer for Trident to stake a claim to the North Pacific fishery of the future, Alaska Pollock. Though the king crab resource declined dramatically in 1981, a smaller species of crab, C. opilio, known to fishermen as opies, and to the market as snow crab, was poised for an unprecedented population increase, and this provided an opportunity for market expansion. In 1984, the Bering opilio crab harvest was only about 25 million pounds. But with little king crab available, Alaska crab fishermen and shellfish markets in the U.S. and Japan were desperate for something to fill the void. They turned their focus to snow crab just as the resource was about to take a huge bounce upwards, eventually allowing harvest levels of more than 300 million pounds. At the same time, the market for Alaska herring roe was poised for an unprecedented leap. Statewide harvests throughout the 80s held steady at about 45,000 tons, but the value of the herring roe soared with the increasing value of the Japanese yen. And by 1988, the value of the fishery had more than doubled, with fishermen receiving nearly $1,000 a ton for their catch. Similarly, the harvest volume of Alaska salmon was spiking to new highs as the benefits of sound Alaska state management began to pay off. Salmon prices were increasing too, as yen values climbed against the dollar and sockeye salmon became even more affordable to the Japanese buyers of frozen product. Trident CFO Steve Okerlund recalled the flurry of activity he witnessed when he joined the company in 1984. The Akatan plant was being rebuilt at record speed. It was held to a tight budget and it started producing fish and making money extremely quickly. Had that construction project dragged on for two years, the extra year would have bled most companies into their grave. But Chuck was cranking up that plant before it was even finished, and it was back in production fast. And it was making money. The gods were with us, Okerlund said. You look at the Apelio stock of those days, and they were on the very beginning of a 10-year run, just going up, up, and up every year. When I started in 1984, it was not a bad time to start in the snow crab business. We were at the right spot at the right time. The salmon and herring markets were good simultaneously. The groundfish business wasn't making much money but we had a solid base for the future. The salt cod project eventually got cleaned up and we became a diversified company with multiple products and we'd learned our lesson from cod. Once rebuilt, one section of the new Akatan plant went to work on a pelio crab while the Bodder 182s and other machines were filleting Pollock. We were doing okay, but we decided to go for it big time. It was a race for the fish in those days We had a lot of competition, with five new factory trawlers coming over from Norway and the Japanese betting big, investing in Dutch Harbor. So we took our chances and cut a deal with Nisui to help us design the Surimi plant. At the time, nobody in Alaska other than the Japanese had a proven track record manufacturing and selling Surimi. The Alaska Fisheries Development Foundation was moving ahead with its pilot project and having some small-scale success, But two very large Japanese companies still controlled the established surimi making technology as well as the surimi markets in Japan. Not surprisingly, both companies were vertically integrated to the point where they were accustomed to harvesting their own fish in the North Pacific, processing their catch into surimi at sea, and selling their own finished products to trading companies and secondary kamaboko artificial crab processors in Japan. So when the Magnuson Act forced them to start buying Pollock from U.S. vessels, they moved swiftly to limit the red, white, and blue links in their supply chain. Accordingly, both Nippon Suisan Nisui, and Tayo invested in large, brand-new shore-based surimi processing facilities in Dutch Harbor. Unice, along with its surimi plant in Dutch Harbor, was a U.S. subsidiary of Nisui. Westward Seafoods, with its huge surimi plant, was a U.S. subsidiary of Tayo. Even though U.S. vessels would now be harvesting the pollock, American fishermen would be delivering to U.S. subsidiaries of the same Japanese companies that used to catch the fish themselves, and those firms still controlled the markets. The Japanese parent companies could essentially buy the surimi from their wholly owned subsidiaries and adjust their transfer prices to keep their profits earned on U.S. soil at a minimum by lowballing the success of their Dutch harbor operations, they could rationalize paying low pollock prices to U.S. fishermen, and they could minimize their corporate tax burden in the U.S. Determined not to surrender the global surimi market entirely to Japan, Bundman chose instead to approach Tayo and Nasui to acquire the necessary technology to produce surimi at Akitan. In exchange for selling Trident the technology to make surimi, both companies wanted to control distribution of the Trident product. Bundrant wasn't interested in becoming a robot for a Japanese company, so he drove as tough a bargain as he could, considering the huge amount of leverage held by the Japanese seafood giants. At the time, Nisui was the largest fishing company in the world, and Tayo was the second largest. I'll never forget, Bundrent recalled, Tayo wanted half of the product in exchange for designing a plant, and I said, screw you. Nisui said they wanted to help design it, and they wanted to help market our surimi. We didn't make them a promise, but we did pay them dearly for the design. This was before we threw it out and used our own design to put in filet machines, including some Bader 182s, a 190, and a couple of Toyos so we could do surimi. The filet lines proved to be our saving grace. Those other guys in Dutch Harbor could only do straight surimi, our diversification into IQF fillets and blocks was very helpful. Looking back, the collapse of the king crab fishery wasn't such a terrible thing for Trident's future. Ironically, the disaster forced the partners to study new options and invest in fisheries they otherwise might never have looked at. Their success in these new areas not only built their confidence as businessmen, but it generated a track record that would catch the eye of financial institutions and deep-pocket investors in the company. When I started, Oakland continued, I think the herring and the salmon were the drivers of the business. Crab was an up-and-coming thing, and you could look at the IQF Pollock, and it was actually a small piece of the pie. Those days, there was real money in the herring business. The Bountiful was no longer just a crab plant. Chuck put plate freezers on the deck of the Bountiful, and it was a herring and salmon processing plant. And there's where the money was made. One of the things that really helped during that time frame, though they weren't actually part of Trident Seafoods yet, was Corey and Chuck's Pacific Viking fleet, which included the Royal Viking and the Pacific Viking. They had already converted over to joint venture trawl fishing. With no crab, they had to do something, but that group was actually making money. Another great asset we brought in was Bart Eaton. Back in 1985, when Bart was just tendering herring for the company, obviously, he was a bit bored. Bart was always thinking about joining Trident, so Chuck sent me over to talk to him. My job, of course, was to tell him how easy Chuck was to get along with and how there wouldn't be any problems. That wasn't entirely the case. But when you hook those two guys up, they're unstoppable. With their knowledge of crab and herring and salmon, they could really accelerate and build the business, and they did. We were fortunate when we bought Sea West. That was my first acquisition. I had no idea how to do it. I'd never participated in the acquisition of a company before. It was a company based out of Bellingham that basically went broke, and SeaFirst Bank was the owner of the thing. Sea West had once been a real going concern, Oakland continued, but when we got there, it was in bankruptcy. It was also into reprocessing, and they had a lot of expertise in the value-added side of the business, but the bulk of the real money was in the brown crab business, partnering with the MV Akutan. Still, that wasn't all there was to it. Chuck can see a diamond in the rough, and this was one of them. And there's a good reason that, to this day, I can remember the very day we bought the company because the tax laws changed on June 30th, 1986. Up until that day, you could actually acquire a company and get their net operating losses, NOLs, along with everything else. After that day, the losses you got in the transaction couldn't exceed the amount you actually paid for the company. So if you paid a dollar for a company, you could only use a dollar of the NOLs. But up until June 30, 1986, the tax laws were different, a lot different. Sea West had a $7 million net operating loss, and we were able to buy the thing for a dollar. And we were able to use the whole NOL amount $7 million. Now, the deal was that the profits had to go through the Sea West Company, too. You couldn't use Sea West losses to shelter Trident Profit, but it's just amazing how the Sea West Company turned profitable overnight. We also struck a deal with the MV Akutan. We started out with it on charter, but we managed to sneak it away from Pelican Seafoods and get into the brown crab business. Jerry Tilley, one of the former Sea West partners, was running the boat, and it went just like clockwork. It wasn't huge numbers, but with 50,000 pounds here and 50,000 pounds there, it added up. And we had a network and outlets for sales, so the Sea West thing turned out to be a good little acquisition for virtually nothing. It was a good deal for the bank because the bank was absolutely hopeless as to what they were going to do with this thing. And it wasn't just the bank that made up. One of the requirements of the deal was that the former shareholders got to retain 20% interest. So we owned 80% of Sea West and the former shareholders owned 20%. Where they got their value was that they got 20% of the NOLs that we were able to utilize. The way they were going before the opportunity was going to expire with a new tax law, and they were going to get a goose egg. They were never very happy with the deal, but when push came to shove, 20% of something was better than nothing. As Bundrant saw it, it saved their houses and put them back in business. As Oakleyn saw it, it was another piece of the diversified mix of business that began to build Trident Seafoods into what it is today. The next step for us was Sand Point, Oakland said, that was Chuck Steele, and he was the mastermind for that one. As Bundrant recalled it, the acquisition was pretty straightforward, and it matched what would become a pattern of identifying owners whose bankroll or patience for the fish business had played out just as the business was about to take a turn for the better. It's debatable whether hanging on a little bit longer would have saved such businesses or driven them further into the sand, but Bundrant had a knack, as o'callan said, of finding diamonds in the rough and buying when the market was low. A guy named Bill Clapp had been suffering some huge losses just as we were starting to expand in the salmon business, Bundren recalled. I told him, call in your attorneys and I'll call in mine and we'll put this deal together. We sat down, shook hands, and we made the deal. We brought Paul Paget in to run the plant and the rest is history. When we bought Sandpoint... Halibut was one of their major production items, Ocarlin recalled. I wouldn't say it was totally new to us, but once again, here we were doing something to diversify our business further. They were also into the salmon business, and to this day, Sandpoint is still one of those plants that does a little bit of everything. I don't think Sandpoint hit any home runs for a number of years, but it gave us a base on the Alaska Peninsula, and it broadened the product line to diversify Trident further both geographically and product-wise. To me, Oakland said, the real pivotal day was when we merged with ConAgra. The merger was concluded in 1987, but it was really in the fall of 1986 when we put that deal together, and that put us in the big leagues. Obviously, Chuck had the dream and the vision to expand into everything, but we didn't have the pocketbook to back up the dream until we got together with ConAgra. The big Surimi plant and the real expansion into Whitefish came after the ConAgra merger. They were the ones who brought the capital to the table. That's when Chuck decided that now we were going to go head to head with the Japanese. We were going to expand and build the new Surimi plant. ConAgra had bought into the crab business and their timing could not have been worse. They bought in and within one year, the crab business tanked. They were a brilliant big company So they decided they needed to diversify by adding some salmon and herring, and they bought Alaska Packers. Oh boy, Oakland said, putting his hand to his head in empathy. I think the history is that poor ConAgra lost about $50 million in the first two or three years that they owned it. So their vision of the seafood business was, oh lord, this is a mess, an absolute mess. Watching ConAgra's investment foundering in the Bering Sea, Bundren and Oakland figured there was never a better time to buy. That's where we got the idea of going back there to talk about buying them, because they should have been motivated sellers, Oakland said, but that was one of the surprising things. They didn't want to sell. As Bundren recalled it, he had no luck discussing the potential sale of ConAgra's seafood assets with Ron Jensen, who was running the Alaska operation at the time. As luck would have it, Bundrant bumped into Phil Fletcher, another executive of ConAgra in Bristol Bay, and got his business card. On the chance that Jensen was cool to the idea of selling in order to protect his own job with ConAgra, Bundrent called Fletcher directly at Banquet Foods, a ConAgra company in St. Louis. In the food industry in those days, you had to do everything very confidentially, Bundrant recalled. So Ed Perry, Steve Okerlund and I went to St. Louis without anybody knowing about it and met with Phil Fletcher. What really opened his eyes, Okerlund recalled, was that we brought the history of Trident Seafoods since its inception and put a little dog and pony show together and he was impressed. From his point of view, here he is in charge of a seafood company that's been losing money every year. Big money. And here's a little company That's been successful making money almost every year. He's real skeptical, but he'd better listen to these guys and pay attention. Fletcher was the guy who said, I don't think we're interested in selling, but let's get the due diligence guy in here. You've got to sell yourself again and make the same presentation to him. Of course, he was the guy who'd put the original bum deal together. Talk about a doubting Thomas. We had to go meet with Bob White. We got the meeting set up in Salt Lake City, a real private place. So we flew out, and it was just the three of us, Chuck, Ed, and myself. We put the same dog and pony show on. White asked a lot of pointed questions, but he just folded his arm and sat there for a while. Then he said, it's time to leave. It was about 7 o'clock, and he just packs up and leaves. We had missed our flight, and I'll tell you, we were three pissed off guys. And we were down in the dumps, Pundit recalled, because we'd done our best job selling this guy, and he never cracked a smile. He figured we were just as full of shit as Ron Jensen and Bob Rezoff and all these other guys who worked for them in Alaska. His answer was, I'll get back to you. I'll never forget. I never had so many martinis in my life. That was my introduction to Beefeater on the Rocks, Okerlund recalled. I think it was Ed who decided we should have a few, or more than a few, and we were down in the dumps. Here we were in Salt Lake City, Bundert said. We'd missed our flight, and it was 1 a.m., and all we'd gotten out of it was a don't call us, we'll call you. We'd given all of our confidential information to our competitor, Okerlund chimed in, and he'd just taken it away and given us a slap and a thank you very much. So we went back, and I heard nothing for about a week, Bundert recalled. Then I got a call from Bob White asking, can you guys be here at three o'clock on Friday afternoon? We have a meeting set up with Harper. It's very important you be here at three o'clock. Mike Harper was the big guy, the CEO and chairman of ConAgra Foods. It took weeks to get an appointment with him. So we looked at flight schedules and saw that the plane left Seattle at 7 a.m. and got in at 1 p.m. We could do that and we said sure. Once again, we kept it very quiet. Only Steve and Ed and Bart and Corey knew anything about it. So we're all excited, and we get to the airport and look at the board, only to find out the flight has been canceled. Oh shit. It's five o'clock in the morning and seven o'clock back there, so I figured I'd call Bob White and see if they've got a corporate jet available. He said he didn't have any jets in the area and wondered whether we could charter one. Charter one? A jet? Oh, shit. I called up and found out it was going to cost $5,000. $5,000. So I called White back and asked, Are you sure it's going to be worth it for us to come out there? He said, Well, it's up to you, son. I'll never forget, Bundren continued. It was Paul Allen's Lear 35. It was a nice jet. And I'm thinking how much is this going to cost us just to have it stand by? And they said they'd give us three hours of free standby, and it was going to be $150 an hour or something after that. As Oakland recalled, Bundrant wanted the standby option because they were worried the meeting might not last an hour if the previous discussion with Bob White was any indication of the outcome. But once they met Mike Harper and began negotiating with him and his accountant Tom Peters, They realized it was more than a tire-kicking exercise, and Bundrent called to release the pilots. It looked like it was going to be worth it to stick around. When we went to bed that night, we were seven or eight million dollars apart, Bundret recalled. Whether they changed their minds overnight, I don't know. But they came back to the table the next day, and they gave us the deal we'd asked for. One of the things you need to remember, Oakland said, was that Tom Peters was the brains behind the numbers and he loved to do things with a little paper and a pen. He sketched things out on a piece of paper, and it was all very simplistic, but there was one smart dude, and we were a fair distance apart when we concluded business the previous evening, but they knew they had a problem, and they knew they needed to fix it. They didn't like the deal that they cut. It started out as a 50-50 merger, but of course, one of Chuck's major tenets is that a 50-50 partnership never shows you who's in control. So it got twisted around until it was a 55-45 deal, and Chuck had the 55%. So there was no question who the controlling entity was. The safety valve for ConAgra was that after five years, Triton would give them the option to buy the other 5% back. And the really big thing for ConAgra was that they wanted the option to buy the entire company after seven years, and we agreed. We developed a formula price that Chuck believed was a fair formula. In hindsight, we would have felt differently, but Chuck was fixated, and in the heat of the moment, it got us to first base. You need to remember, this was a big deal, and it happened very quickly for this sort of thing, Okerlin said. It was almost Thanksgiving when this meeting took place, and literally, these companies were merged by January 1. There was no such thing as due diligence. It was more like, away we go. Still, there were plenty of immediate issues to address. As Oakland recalled, ConAgra had chartered the Alaska Packer out to Dick Johnson for the herring season because they were scared of it themselves. They arranged it so they would be guaranteed some sort of return, but they really wouldn't make anything. Of course, Chuck looked at the deal and said, no way. So we came up with a pretty goofy idea and in hindsight, it worked out fairly well for not knowing any better at the time. We made ConAgra buy the contract back from Dick Johnson for something like $400,000 and tear it up. We figured we'd take the boat up ourselves and take our chances with herring and salmon. The deal was that if we made any money, we'd pay them back their $400,000 to get them back to zero. But if we made any more than that, we'd get to keep it. As I recall, the operation made about $2.5 million. They got back their $400,000 and Chuck and his group kept the 2.1 million. Looking backwards, that was a pretty sweet little deal. The Alaska Packer wasn't the only deal in progress when the merger took place. ConAgra was also negotiating with Bob Morton to purchase another floating salmon and herring processor, the Bristol Monarch. That deal hadn't been fully negotiated, so the question came up, what to do? Chuck's answer was to bring the Bristol Monarch in as part of the deal, another acquisition but ConAgra hadn't even purchased it yet. There was another part of the deal in progress, Seattle Seafoods, which was a value-adding operation. As we got into that one, we realized we didn't want it, so we actually queered that part of the deal or we'd have got that too. On the other hand, San Juan Seafoods was technically outside of Trident Seafoods at that point. We were a 50% invested partner in the company, but it was not yet part of the consolidated Trident Seafood group. To clear that up for ConAgra, Ed traded his stock in San Juan Seafoods for shares of Trident. At that point, San Juan Seafoods became a wholly owned subsidiary of Trident, and Ed became a bigger shareholder in Trident Seafoods. And boy, all of that literally happened in 30 days. Looking back at the string of acquisitions and subsequent successes, Bundren figured the $5,000 Learjet charter he was so worried about netted Trident Seafoods 17 million dollars, the first year of the merger. It paid to be on time. Okerland was quick to credit Bart Eaton for seeing the value in what ConAgra was ready to write off as a colossal mistake. Coming up through the ranks as a crabber and tenderman for salmon and herring, Eaton realized that a growing seafood buyer like Trident needed to maintain adequate capacity to accommodate its growing fleet of independent catcher vessels. If Trident wanted to continue expanding its herring and salmon opportunities and keep up with the skyrocketing Opelio crab quota, it was going to need more metal and processing capacity to support its fleet. ConAgra had both the metal and the money. Trident had the experience and the smarts to know how to use it. Before that, we were hurting trying to service our fleet, Oakland admitted. Our major crab processing operations at the time were the shore-based plant at Akatan and the Tempest, not what I would call the killer platform for processing Opelio. Bart saw that ConAgra had these two huge ships, the Sea Alaska and the Alaska Packer, which were tremendous assets. Talk about timing. There was an acquisition ready to make money right out of the chute. The merger started in January at the beginning of the Opelio season, and ConAgra had to be smiling for the next four months because literally, overnight, the red ink stopped and it went 180 degrees in the opposite direction. After crab, we walked into herring season, more profits. Then we walked into salmon, more profits. Mike Harper, CEO of ConAgra, was a classy guy, Oaklin added. Probably one of only a handful of guys in the world that Chuck would bow down to. And after six months, we had credibility with Mike Harper. Then, when Chuck said we wanted to really expand in the whitefish business, because he had to keep up with the Japanese and build processing capacity and history in the fishery, we had credibility. And if you look at what happened over the next seven years, it was amazing. I've really got to hand ConAgra some credit, Oakland continued, because they stepped up to the plate. These were good projects we put forward, but every time we moved forward, they took risk too. But they were also making money right away. It made it a lot easier to ask for money for the next one. Don't ask me why we did it this way, but at the same time we were building the Surimi plant in Akatan, we were building out the breading and battering line in Anacortis. We were buying fishing boats as fast as we could. Royal Viking decided to merge their fleet in under the same roof, and ConAgra was putting capital in continuously, matching our own risk and never taking a dime out. They were right there with Chuck in the spirit of growing this business. When you look at the sales and production figures during those years, they're just leaping upwards. But it's not like we didn't have stresses and strains, Oakland recalled. Chuck knows better than anybody that cranking up that Surimi plant was a risk. It relied on Nissui's expertise. And of course, we're selling all of the production to them at the same time their mission is to sell it to themselves extremely cheap. I remember looking at the sale price of 52 cents and thinking, God, this is going to be impossible. And it was. Thank God we had the herring and the salmon and the crab that were all doing extremely well to subsidize getting the whitefish up to speed. Like anything else, we could produce a lot of product, but we didn't know how to sell it. We had one customer to start with, Nisui. That's it. That obviously wasn't going to work so well, and they were just going to take advantage of us. And that's what they did for the first year and a half but again, thank God for the herring and the crab business. The two new ships, the Sea Alaska and the Alaska Packer, were workhorses. The Alaska Packer was a hell of a salmon boat from the start, Okanon said, and it was hitting home runs within four months. It rolled right from crab into herring into salmon. It was a money-making machine from the get-go. The Sea Alaska had to be retrofitted. It was a crab processor, but we retrofitted it so it would perform just like the Alaska Packer and process all three species. It wasn't a problem the first year because it was processing crab that year all the way up until May, so it couldn't have made herring season anyway. Talk about utilization of equipment and being at the right spot at the right time.
0: that you enjoyed chapter 24 acquisitions of the 80s don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to know when our next episode the herring circuit is released on wednesday september 30th we appreciate you joining us and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deckload of dreams